This is Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. The last time the U.S. government issued a draft call was December 7th, 1972. We were a different nation then, in a lot of ways. 50 years ago, we had a very different military, too. In 2023, most of the branches are struggling to meet their volunteer recruitment goals, and the Army, for the first time in recent history, actually fell short. Put aside for a moment how you feel about the U.S. military as an operation, and let's talk about recruitment. If the volunteer system no longer works, is it time for another draft? We have the all-volunteer force presently. That's worked great for the military, and I think it's worked bad for America. All I'm asking people to do is really go back to the system that our country was founded on. Joe Plensler, consultant and Marine Corps veteran, joins us to share his idea for bringing back the draft in 2023. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. The U.S. military is having trouble with recruitment. Last year, the Army fell short of its recruiting target by 15,000 soldiers. And this year, the shortfall is expected to be worse. Now, there are a lot of ideas about how to solve this problem. But the least popular of all is a draft. The American military has been all volunteer since the last man was inducted into the Army on June 30th of 1973. An Erasmus survey from last year found fewer than one in four Americans is in favor of bringing the draft back, which means the vast majority of Americans do not want a draft. But there is a small but persistent minority of people, many of whom are veterans, who say a draft is our nation's best option. I'm not one of them. But this minority says not only could a draft help address shortfalls in military recruiting, it might change our perspective on what military service is, and it might change it for the better. Joe Plensler is a consultant, lecturer, and retired Marine Corps officer, and he joins us now. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Okay, so I think we're about to disagree. Okay. <laughs> Respectfully. Yeah, let's say the conversation. But I think... I think we can start off with some agreement, which is that before this, uh, the all-volunteer model has worked well for the military. So why is the draft, to your mind, something that we need? Well, in my view, I'm advocating for a hybrid system, right? Currently, you know, we've, we have the all-volunteer force presently. Um, that's worked great for the military, and I think it's worked bad for America. And I'll, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, but throughout our history, all I'm asking people to do is really go back to the system that our country was founded on. Revolutionary War, we had conscription. You know, you go to the Civil War, we had conscription. Uh, World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, all we had conscripted forces to serve in all those wars. Um, and even things like, you know, World War II, let's bust a myth right there. You know, the greatest generation, you know, the you know Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, the Germans were invading Europe, and all of a sudden all these patriotic Americans rushed off to war. Did they? 62% of Americans who served in World War II were drafted. So I'm just asking America to go back to a more fair and more democratic way of waging war than the current all-voluntary force, right? And there's pros and cons to both. But um, I'm just asking America to go back to that because I think if you look at it, you know, we spent 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. We spent somewhere conservatively $3 trillion um, and literally $8 trillion on those uh, campaigns. And Amer the American people largely slept walk through 20 years of war, had absolutely shouldered 0% of the burden of that effort. They've, and with deficit spending, we pushed that burden off on our kids. So, you know, tell me how the all-volunteer force has worked well for America. Okay, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but conscription is the same as a draft. I mean, conscription literally means yeah. 
mandated compulsory service. That's correct. Enlistment. Yeah. But we've never had equitable service in the military. Those who are wealthier, those who have political influence have always been able to avoid military service. Going back to the Revolutionary War, um, military service has always fallen in a in a disproportionate way on especially the poor and the less powerful. I would ask you to challenge your your set of facts where you're getting your, your information from on that. Like who led the American Revolution? What do you mean who led the American Revolution? It was the people who had the most most at stake economically, right? George Washington, wealthy planner, right? Thomas Jefferson, wealthy planner, Benjamin Franklin, wealthy inventor. I, I mean the people that that led that war effort had the most to gain from it, right? Um, and it, you know, even Vietnam. There's a popular myth that that during Vietnam, the the war burden fell predominantly on on less um, fortunate people. MIT did a study on that and looked quantitatively at at that, and they found an, a very nominal difference in socioeconomic status about the people that served in Vietnam. So that was a 1992 study. Um, you can look it up. It's pretty interesting. So, I mean, very famously, the American Revolution was called a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. I Every mean, it, called that. <laughs> yes, but no. even going back, yes, there was a few wealthy merchants who put who put their support behind mm. that. I mean, I yeah. we're not here to argue history, um, and that helped mm. the the movement to gain momentum. But most of the wealthy in the American Revolution took no action at all. And and going back to Vietnam, the Going simply by percentages, a large percentage is out out of all proportion to the percentage that they make up of the American population were black and brown soldiers. So, well, let's let's challenge that as well. When you look at combat casualties in the Vietnam War, when you look at it, okay, so if if you believe in the concept of race, the people who were identified as African American that served in Vietnam. And died in that war. What percentage do you think? Uh, oh, the total was that. Um, I I would have no idea. I know that they were disproportionately sent to the front lines. I know that they were disproportionately disciplined, and that they were uh, disproportionately promoted less often. But my point I'm not here saying, is I'm that I'm not saying that that the the system is perfect, right? But like when you look at it, like who led desegregation in the United States? The American military. I totally, totally agree with that. The military, right? Totally so, agree. Here's the point. Because of, because the system doesn't isn't perfect, should we throw the whole thing out, right? The justice system's not perfect. Discrepancies everywhere throughout our history. Should we just like get rid of the legal system? No, we strive to make it better. Conscription has worked for our country in many ways and served in, in many ways as, as a melting pot of America, like a true melting pot where you bring people in from every single possible socioeconomic status and region of America, push them together, force them into, to operate as teams, and then to go back to their communities with, with expanded experiences based on working with people that they would have never met, met or, or worked with their entire lives and probably would have avoided. So, you know, I think, you know, when we, when we do that, like, I think it is morally bankrupt to have a war, one, without Congress declaring war, Two, without having a tax to pay for that war immediately, right? Like we've done in the past. And three, without having some form of conscription. Because other than that, like, you, you want to talk about like a, a poor man's army, who has the most economic incentive to go into the all volunteer force? It's not the right. Har- it's not the Ivy Leaguers. <laughs> so I mean, we have a system that's, that right now incentivizes the poorest of Americans to join. 
Yeah, but that's also the case. Again, I, I have to go back to the fact that it, it, the, the draft also disproportionately affects the people in the, the bottom rungs of both income and power. It, it, when you, Going back to the Vietnam War, which again was, the, you know, 1973 was the last time we had the last person inducted into the army. So that's Good. our last conflict. So if you go back to the, the Vietnam War, and this is a, a statistic I wrote down, the, the number of people who ended up being drafted dropped to only 23% among the richest. And that's because they all got deferments for one reason or another. A lot of people volunteered because they knew they were pro- their number was going to come up, right? Right. But again, well, that number among the richest was only 23% yeah. at, the, at the height of the war. And it was significantly higher in, among people in the middle class and especially in the lower class. Well, and that's because there's a number of different things that can get you out of the draft or conscription. Mm-hmm. And the people in the wealthiest families, the people who are among, who have political power or corporate power are able to take advantage of those exceptions. And they do take advantage of And I I think you and I are in complete agreement here. I don't think there should be exceptions to the draft. I think this, I think if Ah. you're in elected office in the United States, your kids probably should get a priority to be drafted first, right? Because then you're going to take our national defense so much more seriously. So I, I think you and I actually agree on this issue. Like if we are going to have a draft, interesting, there should be no exceptions. And, and we also ought to take a look at ability, right? Currently, the United States military um, doesn't allow so many talented people to join just because they have no use of their legs, right? Does it take uh-huh. use of your legs to fly a drone from an Air Force base in the, you know one of the Midwestern states? No. Does it take use of your legs to be a crypto analyst? No. Does it take use of your legs to be a cyber warrior? No. Right. There's so many jobs that, that um, people, we, we need to look at ability differently, you know, from the military's perspective. Because right now, if you can't run three miles, you know, do 20 pull-ups and, and 100 crunches in, in two minutes, you're not qualified. Right. So that's, that's a problem. So this is really interesting. We're going to have to talk about this a little bit more. But first, we have to take a break. We are talking about whether or not we should bring back the draft. Uh, Joe Plensler is with me. He will be with me still when we come back. You're listening to Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate, and we will return. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And we're talking about whether or not the solution to our military's recruitment problem is conscription. Uh, my opinion is no, but I'm willing to hear the argument from Joe Plensler, a, a Marine Corps veteran, who says the all-volunteer army, if I get this right, Joe, works for the military, does not work for America. And you just left with this very provocative statement, which was, uh, which would never make it to Congress, <laughs> which is that the very people who vote to send us to war should be the ones who are sending their children, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% believe that. Like, if you are serving as an elected official, you know, at the federal level, and you have draftable kids, your kids should have a priority to be be in our nation's military in a time of war, right? Because then you have skin in the game, literally. So I think, you know, right, the problem is, it is like when we, our Congress completely shucks the responsibility to actually declare war. When was the last declared war we had? You know, right? And so, yeah. you know, when we don't even follow the Constitution to follow our own set of laws on how to go to war, and then we, with deficit spending, right, we spend trillions of dollars and, and shove it off into the future out of our kids, right, to pay for. I mean, one of the reasons why do we have inflation today? Oh, we spent three to eight trillion dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not right, right? 
And, and yeah. so like what, what deficit spending in the all-volunteer force allows the American people to do is sleepwalk through our foreign policy, pay no attention whatsoever to what the military is doing overseas, right? And do you think for a second that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan would have had been allowed to persist for 20 years, 20 years if there had been draft on? Absolutely not. No way. You know, it's what I'm advocating for is a hybrid system, right? Where our recruiters would go out and recruit for 11 months out of the year. And then where they don't make up, you know, if they say, I need to recruit 20 people and I recruited 18 by November in December, we go to the selective service and spin that wheel and get the rest of them just like that. Interesting. Okay. So that's what you mean by the hybrid system. So last year in 2022, the army fell. All of the other military branches just made their targets. Mm -hmm. That's probably not going to happen in 2023. They probably will fall short. But the army fell 15,000 recruits short. So yeah. In, in your model, in December, they would then go and spin the wheel 15,000 times yeah. and recruit 15,000 members. That's right. And also in your model, the, the, the high up in that list would be the children of elected officials. Am I getting this all right? Yeah. So like, if, if you have one chance to, to do that, maybe they have a chance and a half or two chances, right? Maybe their name goes in twice. Yeah. I think that'd be compelling. See, now, we may agree on this. Like, I absolutely, totally agree there that if you are voting to send the nation to war, you need to be willing to send either yourself or your own kids. That's right. Not other people's children. Like, the, we may have found a point of agreement here. Mm -hmm. I love um, this course. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah. And I want to go back to this idea where you were saying that you, you think the volu all-volunteer uh, force makes the military better. Well, because I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I said it works well for the military and bad for America, right? So right. well for the military in that you know if we are you know it, it's way easier. And, I, and I've served at the the Marine Corps West Corps boot camp for two years. I ran the drill instructor academy that makes the you know the the guys in the scary hats and shiny buckles um, that yell at recruits um, and administer that whole training process. But like I, I will tell you, it, it is far easier to train a recruit right than it is or a volunteer than it is a conscript, right? Somebody who wants to be there because for whatever reason they see their future and their set of values aligning with the military versus somebody who gets told, hey, I know you had plans, but guess what? You're not doing that anymore. You're coming into the military because we need you, right? Um, so, you know, one thing, you have a much more motivated person to begin with, right, initially. But, you know, the other thing too is when you look at the stories of people who were drafted in World War II especially, um, you know, their experiences of like, I would have never have considered military service until, you know, my number came up and I had to go. And the things that they learned through that process about their fellow Americans, um, I mean, it really truly is a melting pot. It's one of the few places in America where the pay scale is entirely transparent. Like everyone knows exactly what everyone else is making, right? There's no discrepancy between men and women in payment in the military. I mean, it's it's not there. Now you could you make an argument for promotion and retention and things like that. Sure. You know, there's we stop some work to do for sure in that in that area. Um, but yeah, you know, but getting, I'm sorry, I'm going to go off on a rabbit hole here if I'm not careful, but getting back to conscription, you know, I, I think a hybrid model could really work because the system's in place already with the selective service. Um, I think constitutionally men and women, you know, who are able-bodied and, and fit the criteria should be equally, uh, subject to the draft because we all enjoy the same, um, benefits of citizenship and living in a free society. You know, it's kind of like, uh, it's interesting when you, when you look at 
the training materials that our government provides to people who want to become American citizens, right? And they talk about rights and responsibilities. They'll enumerate, I think it's six or seven rights, right? You know, freedom to express yourself, freedom to worship, freedom to vote, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. They enumerate nine responsibilities. And that is a conversation we're not having in the United States. Everyone's talking about my rights, my rights, my rights, my rights. You don't see people arguing over my responsibilities to you as a citizen, right? To support and defend the Constitution, to stay informed of issues, to respect the you know beliefs and opinions of others, and defend the country should the need arise. <laughs> you know, it's it's what we tell people who want to come to this country, and it's kind of like if we want to enjoy, you know, America's not perfect, and it hasn't been perfect. I think we're striving to make it better. Um, I think the arc of of history is moving in the right direction, although it's challenged lately. Um, but I think you know, compared to where we start started, we're a lot better. Than when we were in 1776, we're not perfect. Got a long way to go. Yeah, but you know all that we can agree on. Yeah. Right. How about this though? The, you know, the fact is that with an all volunteer army, you end up having people who stay in the military longer because yeah. they are volunteer mm -hmm. and they make it a career. Whereas, you know, I have read statistics that show there's really only two nations that have conscription that have truly high quality military and they're both very small nations. That's Israel and South Korea. Well, Norway, so there's only two yeah. very small countries yeah. with very small populations that have <laughs> both conscription and a high quality, well-trained military. Yeah. And um, I was, because, you know, I've never served in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to make sure I did some research. The, the, experts i was i was reading were saying look we can't recreate that in a in a country with the size of the population that we have what about this idea that it just it with all volunteer you're getting the top people like you're getting a better quality of soldier but are you are you are we are we, are we truly leveraging the breadth of talent in the united states if less than one half of one percent of our country serves i, I don't I don't buy that argument, you know, I, and I think, you know, naturally nobody wants to be told what, told what to do. Nobody wants to be compelled by the state to take action, right? But we do it all the time, right? If you don't pay your taxes, you're going to get a call from the IRS. You're going to, you know, if, if you, you know, disobey the law, you're going to get put in jail, right? So, I mean, our society compels behavior and we've done this so many times throughout our nation's history when the national need arose, you know, through, through a draft conscription, call it what you will. It's just like, I get it. Nobody wants to be told what to do, but we, here's the other thing. I mean, we all have a responsibility to each other, right? If we're going to live in this country and we want to protect and defend our freedoms, it, it, there comes a point where we all are mutually responsible for our collective defense. So if I want to enjoy all the benefits of living in a free society, but I don't want to shoulder all the burdens of doing that, or at least some of them, what does that make me? What do we call people who want to enjoy all the rights, but not, you know, you know, shoulder any of the burden. You know, it's just like everyone wants to to exercise the right to vote, right? Or at least fifty one percent of us do. How many people have volunteered to support your local elections as an election official? All right, so we have to talk right? about uh, so called <laughs> wokeism in just a moment. Yeah. Uh, but first, let's take a break. Okay. Uh, I am talking. We're talking about whether or not we should bring back the draft in at least a limited way. Joe Plensler says yes. Uh, and we're going to hear more about this in a moment. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. Stay with us. 
And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley, and I'm here with Joe Plensler, Marine Corps veteran, consultant, lecturer, many other things. And one of the things that he talks about is the need to bring back the draft in a limited way. Um, The argument being, if one of the branches of uh, the U.S. military misses its recruiter target, they should be allowed to use the selective service to get new recruits. Um, so first let's ask about whether or not then, if we're going to do that, we then start registering women. Do then women get included in selective service in your model, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. And most of the women that I served with over 20 years in the Marine Corps at peace and in war would agree with that. You know, they, they say, Hey, listen, you know, I'm a citizen just like a man. And if, if, uh, if this system exists and, and citizens are expected to serve in a time of war, then you know all able-bodied citizens should be expected to serve in a time of war. And, and I think, you know, it, I'm not, I wasn't the first to say that. In fact, my sisters in arms are the ones who were putting that forward. And I agree. It's just kind of like, you know, it's just like you're all in it or not. Because I think when you don't, what that allows, you know, our, our system has been largely patriarchal for a long time, right? You know, it allows that power structure to put women in a, in a lesser status than than the full-fledged citizen, right? So, um, I mean, you're fully, I agree with that entirely, but I'm sure you could not have served a le- the length of time in the Marine Corps that you have without understanding that there's compatriots who don't agree with that, who believe there are areas of military service where women do not belong, where they are a liability. Yeah, and and you know my my partner, my wife, um, she's served in the Marine Corps for twenty years as well, and and fought against that very thing because you know the the Marine Corps was saying, hey, you know women don't belong in the infantry, they don't belong in tanks, they don't belong in artillery. It's too too dangerous. They put men at risk, and, and the data shows it just wasn't true, right? They wanted to protect the all male locker room essentially, and they wanted to discriminate against women based on on their sex. You know, and and you know, we came along, and she went down to the Marine Corps East Coast boot camp, uncovered forty years of data showing bias, gender bias in the recruiting and training of women, and addressed it internally, and then they fired her from her command. So, you know, we you know launched a pretty strenuous campaign with other people uh, to get that policy changed, and the combat zone exclusion policy was removed uh, within the Department of Defense. So now it's like, hey, if if you can do the job. Or you meet the qualifications, you have a right to compete for those jobs. Because you know what are the fast tracks to leadership, especially within the Marine Corps? Ground combat arms, especially infantry, right? You know, out of all the 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 commandants or the you know the lead four star generals in the Marine Corps, one precisely in the entire history of the Corps was not infantry. So if you want to lead the lead the organization, you got to get into that field. And you know when we when they closed that to women, it was just kind of like, hey, all right, problem solved, right? So that was a big problem because it was unfair. And uh, and that was one policy I was really glad to see change. So there are a number of things that the U.S. military, to to give them credit, right. um, has been doing to try to make the military more welcoming to women in all levels of service. But you have a number of legislators and policymakers who are resisting that and mm-hmm. trying to pass bills literally to make that harder. Yeah. Um, and that would tend to make your proposal complicated, right? Sure. If they're trying to 
create ways so that you can send a woman to any state, to any base in the country or the world, then that means they can't have restrictions on service for all parts of their body, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but if you have legislators trying to legislate what a woman, what kind of health care that a woman can receive for parts of their body, then you can't force them into the military because then their health care is threatened by military service. And, and you're right. You bring up a good point, and it's exceptionally problematic. And we look at the demographics and psychographics of the people who are advocating for that position. You know, one thing becomes abundantly clear: uh, it's not the way. Yeah. Right. And so what's funny is it's this same crowd talks about my rights, my freedoms, and freedom this and freedom that. Until somebody else, ex, you know, expresses their right to freedom, they're like, "Oh, wait, wait, don't be, don't be free like that." You know, don't have right. the freedom to make decisions for yourself about what you do with your own body. I mean, it is such an intellectually disingenuous and ridiculous proposition to say, you know, we should be free to make decisions and be responsible in this country, and, and then we're going to tell women what they can and can't do with their own bodies. Like to me, that's not freedom. That's something else. That also begins with an F. And I can think of a couple words that that match, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I we'd have to solve that first. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of issues that are coming up in that, in which we are seeing politicians, especially right now at this moment, trying to legislate and control what military leaders are able to do within the military in a way that I have not seen in the history of the United States before. Yeah. Yeah. It, it part of it, I, I think part of the big problem is that over the last four to six years, politicians have generally accepted the fact that the military is is best when it serves as a neutral party, right? We don't want military leaders deciding like what orders or not they're going to follow when the orders are lawful, right? Um, we want them to salute smartly and carry out the national security plan. But the problem is when politicians start grabbing the military and using it as a cudgel to beat up their political opponents. Yeah. And to a degree, when um, when prominent senior retired military leaders weigh into partisan politics, like Mike Flynn, um, that becomes an issue because the, the prestige that's held, that the American people have held for the military, is diminished. And we can quantitatively measure this. The the Reagan Foundation, right? No, no shriek, you know, no liberal organization. Uh, found that public opinion of the military slid 14 points between 2018, I think, and 2021. Um, and that's a problem, right? Yeah. One of the reasons, like, when you have an all-voluntary force and public opinion of military people and veterans, you know, slides, and we know that veterans' recommendations to young people to join the military is one of the leading drivers of their volunteerism. Um, when we lose that, we lose... I mean, that damages our national security, right? Under our current system. I mean, you want to talk about like, how do we go back to like a full draft? Yeah, keep on, you know, you know, using the military as a political cudgel against your opponents. You know, it's like, I see politicians driving the country this way in opposite directions. I don't see enough, you know, working to the center, coming to the center, compromising, collaborating, and working for the common good. I don't see it. I don't see it in Washington. And it's, it's, it's disappointing and it's disgusting. But here's the thing. Like we have an opportunity to do something as the American people about that because we choose our leaders. So ultimately, in many ways, we get the government we deserve as a country. We can do better. We need to do better. We've got to do better, right? So we've we found another issue on which we can fully agree with one another. So a point for us. 
Um, Let me bring up one other point, which is what's considered to be a universal basic human right, which is the freedom of labor, right? And that's expected to be, you know, that you can't be forced into labor. And one could see conscription as forced labor. What's your response to that? That that a draft, especially if it's not in a time of war, if it's just an, uh, an attempt to make up recruitment numbers, is effectively a violation of that basic human right to freedom of labor? Yeah, it's it's a good argument, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I'm empathetic towards towards that that idea, right? You know, I'm an old punk rocker. I don't like being told what to do. If I take a values assessment, autonomy is off the charts. Like I'm the guy who joined the military because I did not trust my government. Right. And I was like, if, if, if our founding fathers, you know, were like, Hey, you know, a a standing army is the greatest threat to Liberty. You know, I believe it. I, I really do. And I think, you know, because of that, good people need to be in our military to make decisions. So it's kind of counterintuitive how I came in um, why I joined personally, but you know, it was because I didn't trust, trust the government. I wanted to be on the inside of the military, which is the most dangerous thing to our, our liberty, um, in any country, right? You know, you have a bunch of people with weapons who can compel, uh, through the use of force, uh, behavior. So it, those things need to be kept on really tight rails. We need good people in the military making those decisions. We need excellent leaders in Congress, which we don't have right now providing oversight, right? You know, cause we are a civilian led government, a civilian led military. Um, those are super important things. And I think, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. And I would say like national security and our common defense is the exception to that rule, right? We would never, you know, we've, we've abolished forced labor in many places, you know, in almost every place, um, you know, you could make an argument in the prison industry, you know, like, you know, paying, you know, um, you know, incarcerate people pennies to do labor is, is another form of that, which I think probably needs to stop. Um, but we don't have a country if we can't defend it. Right. You know, if we cannot protect ourselves, uh, everything else doesn't matter. So, you know, the military, like our system of voting, um, is is a foundational bedrock thing that needs to exist below the level of politics and be administered below the level of politics. And I think for that only reason, because it's an existential thing, right? Like, you know, I believe Thomas Hobbes when he said, that, you know, a legitimate government needs to do two things. One, it needs to protect the people from attack. And two, it needs to punish the unjust. And any government that can't do those two fundamental things isn't a legitimate form of government. So, you know, I think when with the military, because our national security needs are so important, right, um, that we need to make an exception in this case because we cannot neglect it. When we do, really bad things happen. When we fail to engage around the world, really bad things happen. I mean, bad things happen when we do. You know, it's, it's a complicated, messy thing. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's even, even though it's not a perfect system, it's a good system uh, that needs good people to improve it. I mean, I gotta say, I came into this conversation expecting to disagree with everything that you said, and that has not turned out to be the case. (laughs) So so kudos to you. You make it, you make a good argument. I'm not swayed on the core, but I gotta say, I'm more convinced than I, I, I thought I would be. I, I will say that. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like when you actually have a conversation, you know, I think most people agree on the goals they disagree on the the methods I'm getting. You know, I think most Americans are like me, like independent, centrist, you know, want to see things done in a, in a responsible way. Um, but yeah, it's just like this hyper-partisan environment we find ourselves in. I mean, that, that's what will destroy us right? more than anything. 
um, you know, it's just like not any external threat or army. It's it's uh, it's people who are unwilling to move to the center and work for the common good. Okay, so I 100% agree with everything that you just said. So we can end on pure agreement. <laughs> Okay, so because public opinion is so strong on hating the idea of a draft, I'm willing to bet you have an opinion on this idea. And you can easily share your opinion by emailing us. It's hearmeout at slate.com. A few weeks ago, we had Aaron Tang on the show to argue that the Supreme Court's biggest problem is overconfidence. We knew that take would get people talking, and boy, did it. So before we go, we want to share a note we got from a listener named Dylan. Dylan wrote this. Well, I think Aaron Tang is right that overconfidence is the problem with the current court. I think he misattributes the root cause of that overconfidence. Originalism, as a jurisprudential philosophy, demands overconfidence of its practitioners that they not only can but must disregard the opinion of all judges who came before them. Overconfidence was a problem before originalism, but the root cause of the overconfidence problem on the current court can be pretty directly attributed to the dominance of originalism as a jurisprudential philosophy. Thanks, Dylan. And uh, also, Dylan, please say jurisprudential three times fast. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open. Hold up. 